Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you're here on My Turning Point. And this week, we have a really special treat for you. Shirley Manson from Garbage is in my top interviews of all time. I love this woman. We always have the most fascinating and compelling conversations. And this one on everything from growing older in music to feminism to John Lennon to Sinead O'Connor to the band's new album is no exception. We cover everything in here. Shirley is one of those people who just says whatever she wants and it makes her one of the most fascinating people in music. So really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy talking with Shirley Manson. This is Steve Balton. You're on my turning point. You know, it's such a fascinating, fascinating record on, on so many levels. And, you know, was there sort of a turning point moment for you guys where you realized that you were going in this very unique direction? You know, sonically, it's very aggressive for the most part. It's like this weird sort of, there were a couple moments that everybody, I know you'll appreciate this one. Uh, when I was listening to track five, I suck with titles because I listened to everything all the way through. So hold on, what's track five? Is, oh, Waiting for God. I felt like that was a song that could have been in the movie Wings of Desire. And since I know that you, like me, believe Nick Cave to be one of the true rock gods, that is a massive compliment. That's maybe the biggest compliment anyone's ever given me. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know the movie I mean, as well? I love the movie. I love the movie. It's exquisite. And I mean, to me, that song sort of the centerpiece of the record. And so for you to say something like that means so much to me. Like, I'm really proud. That makes me just my fucking day is made. Well, it's such a great way, but it's interesting. So was, you said that's the center point. Was there a moment early on? Was there a moment or a song that sort of defined the record early on and took it in this very unique sonic direction? I don't know, you know, it's hard to say because I feel like when we went up, we went up to Palm Springs to do two weeks of writing. Um, I, we did one week and then I think we had a month's break and then we did another week. So over the course of two weeks, we jammed for uh, two hours every day. And then Duke took all the jams home and sifted through them all and picked 16 of the ideas that he felt would make uh, a great record. And so his curation had a large part to do with the direction of the record. I also think that a lot of my lyrics were already in place during those writing sessions. So those, those lyrics are intense. Yeah. They're not, they're not necessarily the easiest lyrics, you know, they're, they're intense. And I felt like that also forced the hand of the band to sort of meet that energy. Cause it's, you know, it, it's definitely an intense record. It's a complicated, complicated, complex record. And I felt like the band met me on my intensity level. And um, I'm very grateful for that, you know, um, because it felt urgent to me. It felt urgent to talk about these things for whatever reason. It just felt like the right time, the right place. And although the record sounds incredibly prescient right now, we wrote this 18 months ago, you know, before a lot of this shit really hit the fan. Well, that's fascinating because going back to Nick, uh, I remember talking with him once and he told me about the fact that, because yeah, I've talked to so many artists about how things often feel prophetic. And Nick, of course, being the genius that he is, explained it best. And he said, as a writer, you're often writing for what it is you're searching for. So do you feel like in a way writing these things, like there was a little bit of longing that you saw coming in the world that maybe makes a sense that it's prophetic or prescient? I mean, I definitely think in some ways it is prophetic, but at the same time, I also have to 
remember that I enjoy the immense privilege of being a traveling musician. And when you travel the world, you start to see patterns before necessarily anyone else does, you know, because not everyone's traveling from country to country to country for 18 months at a time. And so you start seeing these trends in adverted commas that start to present themselves. And, and, and so I was writing about stuff that I had seen happen around the globe um, since we wrote the last record five years ago. And all these things have come to, uh, to roost. You know, these chickens have come to roost um, because they have been years in the making, I think. Well, it's interesting because obviously the record starts with, you know, the men who rule the world, which certainly that's a, a, something that's come up, you know, several times over the last few years in terms of on a global scale. But it's also something that you and I have talked about for years. And it's interesting. I was thinking about after you did the, the uh, it, I believe it's Girl Talk or Girl Power. You're going to have to excuse my ignorance. The one that you did with Fiona Apple. who Girl you know, School. Girl, Girl School, school. LA. Yes, who, you know, Fiona, as we talked about, is just a god. And, you know, one of the things we discussed after that was for you the the sort of importance of, you know, having been someone so vocal in the feminist movement for so long, having someone the talent and caliber of Fiona come out and speak with you. And now I was thinking about this because I was talking with Ani DeFranco a few months ago, who's been right there with you forever. And she was talking about the fact that, you know, people would ask her in the media and almost trying to bait her a little bit into her thoughts on artists like Beyonce and Lizzo coming into the feminist movement. And then she's like, she's like, God, you guys really want to cat fight? She's like, but to me, the more the fucking better. She's like, the more people fighting, the better it is. So for you, do you feel like with the song Men Who Rule the World, it's only empowered by now that you have these artists, whether it's like even Billie Eilish, who's you know brilliant with your power or these things, like it's only made more powerful by you know all these artists speaking out with you. Of course. I mean, I'm immensely grateful to the ge the generation of artists that have come up behind us. Um, you know, whether it's Lady Gaga, whether it's Taylor Swift, whether it's Beyonce, um, all of them adding their powerful voices to the mix is nothing but good. You know, the more the merrier. This is not an exclusive party by any stretch of the imagination. The whole point of artists speaking out is the hope that we will be joined together by by other like-minded people, you know, and create a movement and create change. That's the whole point. So it's interesting for you as someone who's been doing this fight for so long, as all these artists become involved, do you see it expanding? Do you see that all these artists using their powerful voices are making a difference? Fuck yeah, I do. I mean, I think we've got a long ways to go, but, you know, uh, I believe in evolution. I believe that the more people speak out, the more things slowly change. And I see a change and, you know, I'd see a, a definite shift in the perspectives of the new generation. Like young people are not putting up the same kind of shit that we did. You know what I mean? Like they're much more savvy about race relations. They're much more savvy about uh, gender. Um, they're breaking down the the binary bias of gender. They are immensely involved and interested in, in fighting climate change. You know, they're tuned in in ways that we never were when we were young. Um, and, and that is evolution and that's exciting to me and it gives me enormous hope. It's interesting though, because, you know, I, I've been hosting a show for the last year where I talk with artists about their favorite protest songs of all time. And I've made the argument for a year that, you know, to me, the greatest political songwriter of all time is John Lennon, just in my opinion, because of the way 
that he was able to mix the personal and the political. And I think lyrically to me, the most interesting song on this record was Uncomfortably Me because I love just the openness and the rawness of it. And I mean, of course I read it and I don't know that it's 100% autobiographical or not, but I love that when artists are, you know, going back to like a Plastic Ono band and a song like God or a song like Mother, where artists just open themselves up and put it out there. You know, so it's interesting for you in the writing of this record, were there things that emerged that surprised you? Because of course, writing is often subconscious. So things come out and you're like, oh shit, I didn't even know I was thinking that. Well, certainly with Uncomfortably Me, I mean, I had, I think I talk about this in the bio, like my husband had plied me with an Anto Gimlet, which is one of the most delicious cocktails you'll ever drink, but it's also one of the most potent. And then I asked for another one. And by then, all inhibition had been completely lost. And Uncomfortably Me emerged um, during the writing. And um, I was slightly embar- embarrassed by how vulnerable I am on it. And then I decided it was much more you know, interesting for someone who who's pretty has a pretty strong public persona to admit to these kind of vulnerabilities and, and self-doubts. So I thought that was powerful. And in the end, I agreed to have it on the record. Um, but I'm not, I'm always surprised by every song we write. Uh, it's, it feels like magic. Like one minute you have nothing and then the next minute you have a song. And again, for me, Waiting for God, I think was the most arresting in that it talks about something really, really vitally important. But I don't feel it's heavy-handed. I think it's still very beautiful. Um, And I cried when I sang. I only sang it twice, which is unusual for me. Normally, like, when the rest of the band is around, I have to sing it more than, I don't know, more than I'm comfortable with. But in this occasion, when I recorded Waiting for God, it was just me and my husband, and I sang the song twice, and I was crying. And... That has never, ever happened to me before. And that was kind of surprising. And I'm really grateful that I was able to articulate something that needs to be talked about more. And I was able to articulate it on this record. And and, and it felt, I felt a kind of weight being lifted off me that for the public record, I had, I had set, you know, I had, I had a testimonial to, I had a testimony for the public record of where I stand on this particular issue. Well, it's interesting for you. Were there songs or as you go back and and do this? I mean, like I said, I've talked to people about protest songs. And it's funny, one of the songs that actually inspired the whole show was uh, Sinead O'Connor, Black Boys on Mopeds, because I was re-listening to that last year. And I was like, this fucking song is like, I mean, it was written 30 something years ago. And yet it could have been written today. And unfortunately, as I've talked about over the over the years on that over the year on the show, most great protest songs that does turn out to be the case is that, you know, unfortunately, not do they just hold up musically, but I mean, they remain so relevant to this day. But were there songs in particular that sort of, um, I don't know, either inspired you or that when you go back and listen to it, that you're like, oh, yeah, this kind of stands out to me or that you, you know, like just had an influence on you during this time? I don't know. It's interesting that you should mention that. Black Boys and Mopeds, because I've been talking about that song a lot. Um, because when I first heard that song, I was really struck by the tone of it. Like, it really hit me really hard. Um, and I think that was as early as like 1990 when that record came out. Um, and I've always loved that song and it's always broken my heart. And I've always been struck by the skill that 
it to to write that. You know, it's both beautiful and heartbreaking all at once. And um, you know, it starts off with Margaret Thatcher on TV. You know, it's just such a great like she paints this incredible picture and. I feel like, you know, all these amazing songs by these incredible writers. I mean, John Lennon is a big one in my life. Nina Simone, you know, I Love You Porgy. Singing I Love You Porgy might be one of the most heartbreaking moments of, of in musical history. Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. Absolutely gut-wrenching, yeah? And um, there's just so, so many songs that have inspired me. I feel like any song that, like, turned me inside out is a song that, I continue to turn to whenever I'm making music myself. You want to try and at least try and reach up to the to that that standard of writing. You know, it's what you try to do. It's, but of course, it's to to try and reach towards the geniuses is is, is fucking <laughs> disillusioning at best. <laughs> but that's it. It's funny because when you and again, look, every artist is. We've talked about over the years, and I talk about with every art. Every artist is a perfectionist. They're never satisfied. But what happens is you hit these moments where you feel that you've come close. So for you to then write a song that actually moved you to tears, you know, I mean, that must have been, as you say, it's funny, it's disillusioning to reach for the geniuses, but then to write a song that moves you to tears, it also has to make it that much more gratifying. So for you, as you were recording the song and it moved you to tears, was there a moment where you were just like, oh shit, this is special? I feel this whole record is special, but I would say that, wouldn't I? But I, I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to write this record. This feels like, like a seamless progression from me in my house to walking out the door to, to, to meet a public. And there's no shift. There's no change. There's no mask wearing. There's no artifice. This is just, as I said, me opening the door and walking out, out and saying what's on my mind and to try and get that on record is 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 troublesome it's it's hard and I feel like we really accomplished that on this record and you know I can't really ask much more of myself you know yeah and and I feel like also you know I'm 54 I'm not a child the fact that I'm still here making records is astounding to me but I am not someone who just wants to make pop music and be famous that doesn't interest me it actually bores the shit out of me to be quite honest um I want to make music that connects with other people. I want somebody who's feeling lonely or frustrated or, or furious to hear something we've done and go, you know what, that's how I feel and that makes me feel less alone in the world. And to me, that's the job. That's our job. And if we have done that, then that makes me feel like I have value as a, as a human being using my lifespan. Well, it's so interesting because do you feel like this is something that, you know, as you say, it's the progression of you making this record. And I talk about this with artists all the time as well. As you get older, everyone, and you and I have talked about this immensely over the years as well, you get more comfortable, you get more confident, you give a fuck a lot less what people say. So do you feel like this is just the natural record that you're making at this point? And is it something that you could have done earlier or did it need to be something where you were got to... 50, 51, 52, because I'm assuming that's the span the songs were written, that you could write a song like Godhead, for example, or you could write a song like, you know, Wolves, actually, I love as well. I mean, all of them I love, but, you know, these songs that do have sort of an anger, but also mixed with that anger, because it's not, it's vulnerable as well. It's showing who you are. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could have written this record if I was a young'un, you know. And I think that is a great realisation to stumble upon because I feel like as you get older, you know, you're not as fast, you're not as as interesting, you're not as charismatic, you're not as beautiful, you're not this, that and the next thing. So what is your role as an older artist, yeah? And I feel like then your role is to be speaking about things that the young ones don't want to be speaking about or they're not comfortable speaking about or they don't have the skill set to speak about. So I feel like this is the right record for, it's the appropriate, authentic record for who I am, where I am and where the band is, where the, the, the men in the band are. Like, you know, I think there's something sad if you grow up and you don't utilize the tools at your disposal that you are gifted through experience, through age, through wisdom, through fucking pain, through disappointment. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we're a bunch of fucking disappointed wretches. <laughs> and that and that is a glorious thing. <laughs> oh man, it's funny. As you were talking about that, the album that came to mind was Lou Reed New York. And of course then I thought of Dylan Time Out of Mind. And you know, there are those sort of seminal albums with older artists who, you know, just are able to take that wisdom and experience and turn it into great art. So were there albums for you or now, as you think back on it, albums that, you know, like really stand out to you as sort of those, uh, I don't know, sage albums. And it's funny. I also think of like a Patti Smith gone again. And even a song as simple as farewell real is a song. I just go back to again and again and again and again in my life. It's such a perfect, beautiful song. So, you know, it's funny as you think of making the album that is the right moment for you, based on where you are in your life, are there those seminal sort of records that you look back on from great artists reaching that point that sort of, uh, you know, maybe they didn't inspire you at the time, but now you appreciate them more having made this album yourself. You know, I, it's funny. I don't know. I feel like all the great artists that I fall in love with, they're already born whole. Yeah, they, they, they've been making amazing, wise, brilliant records from day one. I'm just trying to catch up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I shouldn't have used the word wisdom either. I don't necessarily think I've got any wisdom and nor have, have I applied wisdom to this record. But, um, I, you know, I, I think of, I mean, somebody like John Lennon, yeah, he's just been gifted with that incredible perspective. But I guess a record that I feel really moved by was You, you, you Want It Darker um, by Leonard Cohen. That, that to me is a record that could not have been written by anyone other than an older man facing his imminent death, yeah? And as a result, he's writing about stuff that most artists are far too fucking scared to touch. And therein lies an enormous power and an enormous beauty. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. And it's funny because obviously you go back to the Velvet Underground days and Lou Reed was, you know, genius from day one, no question. But, you know, that genius manifests in different ways as you get older and that's kind of what I was getting at was, you know, because you do have, okay, whether you want to call it wisdom or not, I'm going to disagree and say you do have wisdom, but there's also, you know, experience. And with yeah. that, you know, just, just from experience that it's funny, even you take a song like the last song, The City Will Kill You. And it's like, I mean, I freaking love that line, but I'm also fascinated as a, as a writer. So, you know, you ask, why was I the one to survive? The one who didn't succumb, who didn't succumb. So can you look at it now and answer the question as to why you were the one to survive and not succumb? 
I guess I just got lucky. You know, when I look back at, you know, the, the mountain of losses that not just I have endured, but those who I love around me have endured and, and certainly the rest of the band, you know, we've, we've all lost so much. And again, that comes through living a lot. You know, as you grow older, you have the great privilege of growing older. You're around for a long time. You lose a lot. And this, that song was originally supposed to be a love song to Los Angeles, you know, because everyone back home where I come from <laughs> slags Los Angeles off. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wanted to write a love song to Los Angeles because it's given me so much in my life. But as the song progressed, it just got more and more dark and more and more twisted. And, um, you know, I wanted to evoke the feeling of like the, Scot the great Scottish band, the Blue Nile, who make these incredible soundscapes and, 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 and of full of melancholy and yearning. And I wanted to like evoke that. And the song just, as I said, got darker and became an elegy to loss and um, how every place on earth you know, has seen its feast of losses. And so I'm really proud of that song though, because I feel like structurally it's the most interesting song we've ever recorded in that. Nothing, nothing repeats. It just continues to evolve. You know, it just, it sets down and then starts to spread out and, and then never ever stops until, and, and then never changes until it stops. And I, I'm really, really proud of it. I think it's, it's beautiful and, sad and twisted <laughs> and I love it <laughs> well it's interesting too because like I said I think that the, you know what makes the record work so well is as you said the band really met you in your lyrics there it's such an interesting sonic record and you know I think probably it's funny because I've mentioned lyrically but I think sonically probably the artist I heard of there the most to me was Nine Inch Nails and you know who I'm a massive fan of so, but it was like Nine Inch Nails, not traditional Nine Inch Nails. It was like, for example, I had just done a Who I Am with Gary Newman. And there was like, you know, the mix of the Gary Newman Sin stuff that then Trent made in. And so sonically, it's a fascinating record. But, you know, I know we've got to wrap up in a second because unfortunately we only have 30 minutes and you and I can only always talk forever. <laughs> I mean, for you, are you... Um, you know, I, I, are there songs that you are really most excited to play live? Because it's funny, Sunday night, I went to that live back show and it's, you know, I've done hundreds of interviews over the last year. And now all of a sudden, when I do interviews again, we can talk about the fact that, oh shit, there's going to be live music again. Mm. Well, first, I just want to say to you, you like, you've got a really good ear because Gary Newman was a muse for us on this record as was Roxy Music, as was Susie and the Banshees, as was all, as the Cure, Teardrop Explodes, the Echo and the Bunnymen, like a lot of new wave stuff. Like there was a lot of muses that we had, but Gary Newman was one of the prevalent forces of this record. I mean, you talk about Nine Inch Nails and we're all huge fans of Nine Inch Nails, but it all began with Gary Newman, yes. Yeah? So um, I, I just wanted to give Gary a shout out there because I love him and I think he's a spectacular human being. Um, and yes, I'm looking forward to playing live, but I can't get my hopes up yet. I, you know, until until the the doors of the box open and I know I, I'm ready to race, I just can't get my hopes up. I just have to be patient and wait. Well, you know, it's interesting because I don't think we've spoken. It's been a couple of years. So, you know, uh, we have not spoken about the fact that you are supposed to be touring with Alanis and Liz, both of whom I absolutely love and are amazing and, and so freaking smart. It's funny. I was actually talking about uh, Liz 
with Moby not long ago. And Liz is one of those people that when I talk with her, I always just hope that I don't sound stupid because she is so intelligent. So for you, you know, let's talk about the anticipation for that tour. And again, you said you don't want to get your hopes up too much, but you know, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful package and it, you know, it's artists with a very similar sensibility, if not musically, at least idealistically and in terms of ethos. Yeah, I must admit, I'm I'm really excited about it. I love both women, and um, we've we've all spoken separately, and and we're all looking forward to being together as a, as a coven. Um, and it's unusual when you get paired, you know, on a tour like this, where everybody is very in sync and sympathetical, you know, um, and you know, those both women are at the top of their game. So to be in that school is is very gratifying and 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 uh enormously exciting so i'm looking forward to that um and then we're supposed to be going out with blondie again um in in my homeland uh in the fall so we've got a really wonderful second half of the year lined up i just i'm praying we get to fulfill our dreams Well, all right. We're going to make these like, like I said, Krista asked me to please keep it to 30 minutes. So I'm going to make these last two quick questions. But one, I have to ask, it's interesting because, you know, obviously with Blondie and with Alanis, you know, you're in shows where you can't do the, the, you know, it's limited sets. It's co-headlining thing. People want to hear the hits, but this came up when I was talking with someone the other day and I go back to Green Day doing American Idiot in full in clubs before the album ever became successful. And this is such a soundscape and such a sonically linked and cohesive record. Would there be opportunity to, and also, you know, you, I think you mentioned it was Duke who really put it together from a sequence. The sequencing is brilliant. I mean, it really, you know, the city will oh, kill I you. I sequenced that record. Well, you did a fucking great job and, and the city will kill you is such a perfect finale to it. So will there be any opportunity to, to take it from start to finish, maybe play it in a smaller venue before you do all these big shows? No, unfortunately, the way things are scheduled, we won't have an opportunity to play the record until we go out with Alanis. And yeah, you're right. We won't be playing much of the new record at all. Um, so we'll just have to wait till next year when we, we get to play our own shows. Um, we're in service this year. That's that's our job and that's what you know we will do and we'll do it well. And um hopefully have a riot you know we're really looking forward to it it seems like a perfect sort of anecdote uh, antidote to you know this fucking last 18 months of like sitting blowing on our heels so it'll be exciting either way but yeah i think the new record as a as an entity will have will have its moment next year nice all right by the way in the deluxe edition i know which i haven't seen the full track list but i saw the deluxe edition comes with some covers so you know just as a fan Give me one or two of the songs that that are on the deluxe edition. Well, I'm very proud of the cover version we did of Starman by David Bowie. Um, David Bowie is not somebody I would normally consider touching for a cover version simply because he is the greatest. And, and you know, who, who are we to think that we could ever, you know, match that? And we didn't match it, but we came up with something of our very own... Um, we got asked to do it by Howard Stern for a project that he was working on to honor David Bowie. And we ended up loving it so much that we decided to release it on our deluxe edition. And then, of course, there's a great duet with um, with Brody Dahl and an incredible duet with Marissa Paternoster from The Screaming Females. We do a 
because the night cover in 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 a, in a homage to our hero Patty Smith, and um, a really great cover, uh, a really great duet with um, Brian O'Bear from uh, Silver Sun Pickups. So, yeah, there's some lovely songs in there that we're we're proud of, and um, yeah, we'll see we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. I know that we got to wrap up. So what do you want to add? I, I guess, you know, we'll wrap up on this. I mean, you know, as we talked about, writing has a tendency to be subconscious that so things emerge. So, you know, it's only when you can go back and listen to a record from start to finish after you're out of the midst of it that you can appreciate it, you know, as a whole entity. So when you go back and listen to No Gods, No Monsters as a whole work, what do you take from the whole work? And, and what are the one or two things that, you know, Rather than what would be the one or two best things that you can hear other people say about it when it's done? Because I do feel like it's a record that is very much intended to inspire in terms of bringing people's confidence up and, and encouraging them to speak out and, you know, not be afraid to say what they have to say. You know, I, I still think it's probably early days. I mean, No Gods, No Masters is is a record that, we felt we had to make and once we had made it there was a certain bizarre feeling of relief and I know that already having released two two of the tracks already from the from the upcoming album release a lot of the fans have talked about how they have felt that we've been able to articulate something they were unable to articulate for themselves for one reason or another and that seems to me like one of the greatest compliments you could be paid by a fan where you are speaking on behalf of them because you were gifted with, you know, the, the gifted with the being in the right place at the right time with the right people, with the right set of talents. And, you know, um, that mean that makes me feel like we're honoring the gifts that we've been given in a, in a, you know, in a fine manner. And, you know, that's all we can really ask of ourselves. Cool. What do you want to add that, you know, it's funny, there's 27 more questions I can ask you at least, but, uh, you know, we have to wrap up. So what do you want to add? I did not ask you about. I would like to add that I appreciate your ongoing support of our band and our music and that I know you have a plethora of acts and people and bands that you could be interviewing and spending your time, you know, researching and so on and so forth. And so I just want to express my gratitude to you, Steve. Um, oh, it's always my pleasure. We always have the most fascinating conversations. And, you know, it's so funny. I go back to the start of the Who I Am. And, you know, it's only because of the fact that I needed to come up with something different because I always wanted to talk to you every opportunity there was to do so. And I go back <laughs> to the conversation we had beforehand about it, that if either one of us had to do one more of the, my new album is the best album I've ever done interview, we were both going to lose our shit. But, you know, I mean, you've made this wonderful record. It's awesome to talk about it. It's always great to to catch up. And, you know, I stand by, you know, it's funny. There are artists that I've built relationships with. And, you know, I once called Grohl the coolest guy in rock. And we've been friends for many years. And I stand behind my argument that Garbage might be the coolest band in rock. So, you know, and I love, oh, Steve. I love, I love you, Steve. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's well, really sweet. Well, I love to see also, though, you guys grow into it as well, because as a fan, you know, it's funny, like, um, we're, now this is just you and I talking. I look at the national, the national, you know, my ex-wife, who's still one of my best friends, she made me go see them at the Echoplex when they first started. And they've become one of the biggest and best bands in the world. And it's as a fan, you know, it's very gratifying to watch an artist grow. And I was always a fan, but to see you guys grow into this sort of like elder states person, you know, like <laughs> with so much to say is very, you know, again, the way that Lou Reed did with New York, 
is just, it's fucking cool as a fan. That's lovely. You've just, I'm just going to go away and get drunk now because you've just made my night. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm All right, well, always a pleasure to make your night. Great to catch up and congratulations. Thank you, Steve. You know, I, I look forward to it. Thank you. I hope your eye feels better. <laughs> uh, I hope so too. But either way, you know, once again, ev- every interview, you know, we do ends up being memorable. So, and they're always fun. <laughs> though, so. All right, go- boss. Bye, Thank bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been here on My Turning Point with special guest Shirley Manson from Garbage. And I hope you got as much out of this interview as we did because, man, this was a blast. Thank you. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition smart bed queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. When it comes to LASIK, Dr. Boutros and the Eye Center have led the way for the past 25 years. Today, this tradition continues by being one of the few practices in the country to offer you iDesign 2.0, using the same technology as the NASA James Webb Telescope. And in the hands of an elite surgeon like Dr. Boutros, more patients are seeing 20-20 or better after LASIK. Right now, enjoy 20% off iLASIK with iDesign. Go to theeyecenter.com or call 888-844-2020. Some restrictions apply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.